This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically here with me in studio to discuss all things science is, I nearly said Luke Kelly, but that's not you. You are Luke O'Neill. You got my name right for once. Now I'm impressed. Yes, I did. Um, I have loads of questions for you that people want to know about science. But Love before questions. I ask you the questions, you tell us what you think is important. Well, the big headline this week is Alzheimer's. You've probably seen it. I uh, saw it. Um, it's amazing. Yeah, it did come out. About What's the name of the drug? It's not Domperidone. Donanamab. Donanamab. These names are always very challenging. But um, no, we got sight of this about three months ago. Mm-hmm. With Eli Lilly, they're, they're the ones who discovered this drug, presented their data at a big Alzheimer's conference, and it looked great, you know. Now, what, what I mean by great is it's the first sign that a drug could stop progression of this really damaging, horrible, horrible disease. You know, it's just the first evidence that it might be. Now, they're, they're calling heard, it a turning point, I guess, is the phrase they're using. You know? What I've heard is that from my research studies, this is giving people an extra kind of four months. And, but it does not work on vascular Alzheimer's. That's right. Yeah, vascular dementia, not Alzheimer's, yes. Now, the four Sorry, months is funny because that, that was just the court, the time of the trial. They followed people over the okay. course, I think it was 18 months in total. And they slowed down progression by a third is the number. But that it has to be at. caught early. The earlier the better, yeah, as in most diseases. So if people are listening now and they have a relative who has recently been diagnosed, like how I sometimes get frustrated with these advances in science because I'm like, yeah, but when can I walk into my pharmacy yeah. and be like, give me this thing that's going to save my uncle, grandfather, whatever. And I feel guilty if I talk about this sometimes because it has a big breakthrough. Oh, can I get the drug? And it's it's really sad when someone emails me and says, oh, please, my relative has disease X and you were talking about a possible breakthrough. The trouble is, of course, it does take time for these breakthroughs to become available. I always talk about them if I say there's hope in them, by the way, to give people hope. Now, this one's different because another drug similar to this one has already been approved. A company okay. called Esai have a very similar drug going after the same process in the body. What's it called? It's called a Canumab. Another funny name. But Why are they ending in MAB? They're antibodies. Okay. AB, A-B stands for antibody. And what okay. these things do is, by the way, antibodies, of course, are exquisitely specific for proteins. That protein might be on a virus. In the case of COVID, it was a spike protein. Mm-hmm. But clever scientists made an antibody to a thing called beta amyloid. Mm-hmm. That's a natural protein in your body. But for some reason, it clogs up the brain the hippocampus in particular, and causes a fire to break out there effectively and destroys that part of your brain. Now, an antibody can mop it up, like a sponge, you know. It can mop up beta amyloid, and that's what these drugs are doing. Everyone makes beta amyloid, but doesn't sleep, like, clear out beta amyloid. So that's why I heard that if you don't get enough sleep, you're more probable to get Alzheimer's. That's a hypothesis. Uh, There's no question when you sleep, your brain gets cleaned. That Mm -hmm. was discovered about six years ago now. Amazing discovery. The big mystery, Steph, scientifically, is why do we sleep? That was a question that we didn't know the answer to. To get rid of beta amyloid. Well, there was always thoughts, does it reorder your thoughts and all this kind of thing? But then they show when you're asleep, the sluice gates open in your brain and you flush out all the stuff that builds up during the day down to your liver, actually, Mm -hmm. and gets detoxified is the way to think about it. And what does beta amyloid do? Why do we have it? Is there a positive? That's a bit of a mystery, strangely. It's got some function in, in the brain, right? But in this disease, Alzheimer's, it begins to build up mm-hmm. for unknown reasons. Let's get that clear, by the way. Uh, the, the hypothesis was derived 30 years ago, actually, that it's called the beta amyloid hypothesis. They can detect it in post-mortem brain samples. If you, if you take a sample of someone who's died of Alzheimer's, the hippocampus is full of beta amyloid, like a big sort of noxious thing Tumor is built up like, there. Yeah, yeah, huge amount. And they're called plaques, of course, because they form these big patches in the brain. The mystery is, why is it building up? But someone said, let's not worry about that. We'll try and crack that tomorrow. 
let's have a way to block it. And then these antibodies go in and clean that part of the but brain. But would it not be kind of important to be like, what is the point of this at all? Can we just get rid of it from the source? Well, it's, it's probably inside cells, first of all. In this case, okay. it's outside the cells. So the normal function wouldn't be affected by this drug, you see, is yes, the idea. Okay. And then secondly, it's all about the amount. There's far too much of it building mm-hmm. up. So again, the antibody is lowering the levels of it and allowing the immune system, by the way, to clear it. Because the way antibodies work, by the way, is they latch onto something nasty and then macrophages come in, recognise the antibody, actually. It's like, it's like a pair of hands then, mm-hmm. sucks the stuff up and eats it. And that's what's happening here, we think, by the way. So macrophages the, are also the things that make tattoos fade. They are. Oh, well, you remember that one. You're yeah. sure you've got a great memory precisely. <laughs> yes, they that's right. Yeah, the that's exactly what they do. When you have a tattoo, yes, the macrophages in your skin have sucked up the dye. And then when that, that macrophage dies, a new one comes along and takes up the ink again. And that's where the tattoo persists. Eventually, that begins to fade though, over time. You know. So I have a question here. Why is there no joined up medical exploration of long COVID people with medical issues? Yes, really important question, actually, because the more we go on, the more evident long COVID is. It can happen months and months after you've been infected, by the way. Mm-hmm. Doctors are seeing more and more of it in hospitals. So it's a very serious thing. And as you know, the symptoms can be devastating. A certain percent of people end up in bed. They're immobilised. You know? Now, there's a big effort going on, it has to be said, to try to unite different specialties and try and crack. Doctors want to crack this, remember. They're doing, they're doing their best. So there is a bit of joined up thinking, you know. But, but are people still interested? Like, I'm noticing that people have a lot of gastrointestinal issues yeah. with long COVID. But people don't seem to be talking about that. And any time you say that something is associated with COVID, people think you're a conspiracy theorist. Well, again, as, and it's a work in progress, inevitably. So, in other words, this is still a new virus strikingly, you know. It only jumped into humans in 2020, remember. So, And then we're looking at lots of people who've had it and now they're being studied and all these things are being reported. The brain effects are getting more evident. For instance, there's more and more reports of things brain like fog. brain fog, yeah, and even more serious brain consequences in this way. You know, there's a great piece in the Economist actually just read yesterday about this. So, you can, and you can det- detect the virus in postmortem samples, not in everybody, okay, in a certain percent of people. So we're learning. Uh, uh, the virus can infect anywhere in your body. Remember, it mainly in your airways, of course, in your lungs, and that's why you, mm-hmm. you see. This. But there's evidence it can go anywhere if it goes into your gut and persists there or maybe sets off something that then continues after you've fought the virus then that might be causing some of those symptoms. But is there like you know the way they have developed medications for normal COVID should people with long COVID be taking those because the COVID is obviously persisting or is this damage done by COVID but the virus is no longer in their system? There's, there's two options. One is the virus is still there somehow and it's still burning away, you know, and then you might see an effect. The vac- in fact, the vaccine, by the way, there's good evidence that if you got the vaccine, you have a much lower chance of getting long COVID, which mm-hmm. is a good thing, you know, another reason to be vaccinated is to avoid long COVID in a way, you know. But if the virus is burning away there, it's not clear whether a vaccine would work in that situation because it's gone a bit late you might say so that's a bit tricky certainly one example is if we understand the damage that's happening in say the brain or the heart in long COVID we could target that therapeutically and the big advance there is coagulation and this is the one thing in my lab I think we spoke about before so my lab have made a finding we can stop some of the coagulation in COVID Mm -hmm. now that might be beneficial so instead of having little tiny clots in your brain or your lungs or your heart or whatever if we could stop the clots that might be beneficial to people again so a huge amount of work is happening in other words we haven't forgotten this by the way many labs are working on long COVID Mm -hmm. and there's two reasons first it's serious and we want to help people with that condition secondly it might inform other post-viral syndromes like chronic fatigue syndrome for example Mm -hmm. a big one's Lyme disease that we worry about that definitely causes long-term symptoms in a good number of people you know in fact various infectious diseases have been known to do this and it was often ignored and people 
people were sort of, oh, you're you're not being, you know, nothing medical here. Say that's not true. Long COVID tells us this is this is a real physical problem that needs needs to be um, dealt with. Really, you know? it feels though that sometimes people are kind of dismissed with it. But anyway, that's probably just because it's new. Yeah. Another question here. Is there any breakthrough with the detection of cancer in the body before it manifests itself? Yeah, huge. That's another huge one. That's huge progress, by the way, inevitably. I came back from a conference. I was in America about three or four months ago, the big American oncology conference. Loads of talks on new diagnostics for cancer. Mm -hmm. In other words, could you detect tumours in a blood sample? And one example is they can detect 50 types of cancer now in the blood even before the tumour starts, you know. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's easier to detect if the tumour is there because the tumour is spitting out something mm-hmm. that you can now detect, you know. But in the, in the, the evidence is increasing that you can see it before the lesion, as we call it, before the tumour begins. That'd be fantastic. And when you go to your doctor, your blood pressure might be checked. The doctor might also check for evidences of any signs of cancer emerging in your body. Do you think that but, will become a standard thing? I do, absolutely. And, and the, this latest stuff again is telling us. This has happened before, by the way. You remember the famous uh, Elizabeth Holmes controversy? where yes. So there's always been, it's been difficult to do, let's put it that way, because you're trying to measure something that's very tiny or is sparse, you know. Mm-hmm. But the detection methods have got better. And now they're deploying them in the context of cancer. So the, the dream and is it would diagnostic be or is it like screening? So we've taken your blood and we can tell you that you don't have these fifty types of cancer, but we can't guarantee you that you don't have these other fifty that we can't test that, for. That's that's one issue, right? If we right, could detect okay. every possible cancer, that'd be great. But if it's a positive test in a GP surgery, then you're referred to the proper test. If you know what I mean, the more accurate test can be done then, and then you can catch it. Is, yeah. is the is the is the overall goal there really? But there's progress. No, the breath. Another one I saw was um. A breath test, can you believe it? Because tumours give off volatile chemicals. Oh my God, I heard once about a woman who could smell cancer on your breath and everyone thought she was a witch. That's right, she wasn't. She, that's true and dogs can do it. People have known the dog owners, the dog can sniff smell it out. Cancer. And that inspired some of this, by the way. So, right. So they're called volatile chemicals are coming off. See, tumours are nasty things. They're growing in your body. The cells are a bit peculiar. They're, they're making different things, you know. That's what you're detecting. And often you're detecting the DNA, by the way, because most cancers mean a mutation in the DNA. Mm-hmm. They're called oncogenes because they're causing cancer. And things like cigarette smoke cause gene mutations, and that's what causes cancer in that regard. You can measure the oncogenes and see, see the mutation. And BRCA2 and HER2, the famous ones of breast cancer, they're mutations in genes, you see. So the, the hope is each cancer will have a genetic profile okay. that can be then detected in the blood or in the breath, and that makes it much easier. But then if, if they all have a gene profile, then you're sort of predisposed like so the BRCA2 gene you can get tested for that now and be like oh I have a higher in chance of getting breast cancer so I'm just going to get my breast removed before yeah. anything happens but if lung cancer is caused by smoking then you can't genetically be predisposed well I suppose some people smoke and they don't get lung cancer they so do is, absolutely yeah. is it a genetic it's, it's not just genetic that's the okay. truth of it yeah the, 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 the oncogene increases your risk of it developing you see Okay. other things the seven hallmark, the seven things have to go wrong by the way here's a good one to get cancer <laughs> yeah seven separate things happen Okay. it's like you know seven different hits as it were and then you're knocked yeah. out cancer needs lots of things to happen now some are very aggressive and a genetic change will cause it for definite but most aren't like that you're quite right. So in other words, smoke or some, we've all know people in their 90s who were smoking all their lives right. and they never got cancer, you know. So they, they, and that's they, just a genetic. Well, they probably had the genetic change, but their body could somehow handle it, it, you know. They could, they could deal with it. What do you think, I'm getting this question a lot, what do you think about the chickenpox vaccine for children? 
Yes, it's, well, it's recommended, mm-hmm. right, isn't it? Let's face it, I think. You, you know this as much as me. So the, yeah, the GPs it is are from, it. I think, 13 months or something. Yes, I always, always follow that advice. That's always my view on this one, remember, because there's people looking at this and saying this is the thing to do. So follow. you don't need to follow their advice, I guess. Well, I had the chickenpox vaccine 36 years ago in Germany. It's standard. It was standard 36 yep. years ago. Yep. And I've never had chickenpox. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, yeah. when everyone in my class got chickenpox, I got two little spots that I didn't even notice. Yeah, yeah. Now, the, the trick always is follow the HSE, even mm-hmm. though you mightn't like to follow the HSE sometimes. They've looked at it closely. When the EMA approves something, the European Medicines Agency, and says this is this safe, or certainly the risk-benefit is towards benefit, mm-hmm. then you follow that advice. That's, a, that's always the way to go with that. Yeah, I guess because there are... Chickenpox, it's mild for most kids. It's a very annoying week or two weeks. But it can get like oh, into can be their nasty. mouths, into their lungs. Nasty. It can make, be nasty. Make the child miserable. You know, awful business. So, so now the advice is to take it to help, to help, to help the children by vaccinating. What happened to monkeypox? Yeah, still there. <laughs> What's yeah. the great phrase, Step? It hasn't gone away, you know. Yes. Um, oh, it's still there. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think that was a good example, wasn't it, of massive paranoia. Yeah. <laughs> it came just as COVID began to go, and oh, good Lord, another virus. What are we going to do about this, you know? There's a vaccine, there's treatments, you know, and that's a nasty enough thing to get, by the way. You don't mm-hmm. want to get monkeypox, awful sores, you know, so it's best avoided. But it's not nothing huge to worry about. What are the side effects of long-term pill use? I'm 36 and I've been on and off the pill for 14 years. That would be outside my expertise, I must say. Okay. <laughs> Although uh, I did meet the guy who discovered the pill, Jurassic, once. Carl Jurassic, when he sadly passed away. He, oh, okay. he, he, he visited Trinity once, right? And we he's such a hero, isn't he? They, they rate the contraceptive pill as one of the top 10 medical advances. Doesn't, isn't that a good way to think of it? So, so I met Jurassic. Do we still need to get COVID boosters? What's COVID looking like for this winter? I think what's happened with COVID is this. It's quite straightforward. It's like the flu. If you're vulnerable, if you're older, right, over 60, I would recommend. If you've comorbidities, if you're a healthcare worker because you're at risk of exposure, take the vaccine. That's if the you're, message. What about like if you're pregnant or you have asthma or but you're under 65 well obviously I don't think it'll be recommended for that that, because Mm -hmm. again there's a low risk there it's all about risk benefit again it'll be optional if you're pregnant and you want to be vaccinated that's fine you know but overall I think it'll be like flu you know you'll you'll be said look there's no doubt we now know so much about it you're at high risk if you're older for definite right Mm -hmm. or if you have certain diseases like heart disease high blood pressure diabetes we now know from the millions of people who've died remember where the risks are and they're the ones you want to vaccinate Just taking a quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Rockwell Financial. Rockwell Wealth Management are proud supporters of women in business. They support this podcast, they support me, and they want to support you too. They have a free consultation for basically listeners. This is the offer. You contact them, you tell them that you listen to the Basically podcast, and they will give you a free one-to-one consultation to help you with your wealth management or any financial advice you need. When you're not feeling well or if you're in pain, getting medical treatment without delay is what matters. Matter Private has an emergency department at their hospital in Dublin and Cork where you can get access to emergency medical care quickly. I've used the service myself. The emergency department team was led by a consultant and they got me seen within 30 minutes of my arrival, which is their goal for all patients. And that means you can get whatever diagnostic tests you need without a delay, like a CT scan, an MRI scan, an ultrasound. And those results are fast-tracked to help the medical team work out what was most suitable for your treatment. If you need to be admitted to the hospital, which I didn't, you will be seen as soon as possible by a consultant who specialises in your specific medical or surgical area of need. 
It's for over 16s only and they're open in Dublin Monday to Saturday 8am to 5pm and in Cork from Monday to Friday 9 to 5. See matterprivate.ie for more details on getting the specialist care you need as soon as possible. If you're not feeling well and you need medical treatment quickly, visit the emergency department at Matter Private Cork and Dublin. Also, loads of people asking about this chickenpox vaccine. Like, should you get it if you've never had chickenpox as an adult? Uh, you mean as a grown-up, should you yeah. get vaccinated? Well, there's the Shingrix vaccine for shingles, remember, which is chickenpox when you're older. And that's recommended if you begin getting symptoms of shingles, you take that vaccine and that helps, you know. Should you? I don't think, see, see most people have had chickenpox. Yeah. Remember. And, and we all know this, don't we? In fact, it is one of the most infectious viruses. So I think the uh, the or not, remember that? Do you remember that, stuff? The or not? Yes, I do. The number yeah, of times see, that it see, reproduces. You know, that's, that's like nine for chickenpox. So, so one person so would infect nine. nine, you know. So if you, if you go to a party when you're three or four and one of the kids has chickenpox, there's a like, damn good chance you're going to pick it up. But everybody used to have chickenpox parties to try and they get everyone. They did indeed. Yeah, that's right. That was a bit uh, interesting. Well, I'm definitely <laughs> going to get Rory vaccinated against chickenpox. Yeah. Could anything like the COVID pandemic happen again? That's the other 64 gazillion dollar question. Uh, we hope not. Uh, we do know one thing, though. Those coronaviruses, every 10 years, a new one crops up. Mm-hmm. There was SARS, then there was MERS, and then there's SARS-CoV-2. You yeah, but know. SARS and MERS didn't come over here. They didn't, and they were different. Remember, that they're different types of coronaviruses. Yeah. They're in the family. The influenza viruses are a different family entirely. Yeah. The coronavirus family had a new member, SARS-CoV-2. Remember, there's, there's three coronaviruses that cause the common cold. Rhino. So one in five. Now, rhinovirus is a different family. Okay. <laughs> Interestingly, you know, rhinovirus is the main cause of colds. One in five colds are caused by these other coronaviruses. OC43 is the famous one. You know? okay. And then suddenly a new member that's nasty emerges and then, hey, presto, you get SARS. We were, they were different because you got really sick and you went home to bed. And you didn't spread it. COVID-2, you could carry it have few symptoms and spread it. That was the thing I said before. That's, that's the okay. most malignant aspect of that virus. Now, will a new one crop up? Very hard to predict, but you might want to keep an eye on it. Let's put it that way. And are they still keeping smart. an eye on other viruses? You know, the way there was like viruses of interests and ones of concern and... Yeah, they are. But you wonder, do people begin to lose interest when the emergency goes away? I wonder. But they are sampling all the time, remember, in various places. Uh, the first sign will be people in hospital getting really sick and then that happened with COVID too and then they can't identify it and then the new virus is identified. That'll be the main thing. Now, as soon as that happens... And it probably will happen at some point in the future. It could be 10, 15, 30, 20 years away. Mm-hmm. Surely we'll know what to do and react more quickly the next time around, you know? Yeah. But it's very hard to predict. And it might be a different type why of disease always, anyway, you know? Why do they always seem to start in, like, the east of the world? Well, they're jumping from animals, remember. So they're they zoonoses. Did you know, Stephanie? Here's a fact. Yes. Malaria came from gorillas. Did you know that? But you never knew that now. And no, jumped into humans from. from gorillas. For instance, HIV was monkey, simian, you know. I knew virus. that. This one came from a bat. So in other words, whenever we're in close contact with animals, there's a risk of a virus jumping from an animal into a human. Now, why does it happen? And that's where the bats were. It's as simple as that, you know. The, bat, so the bats were in that part of the world. the human population expands and we start kind of encroaching on animal habitats. Yeah. Or is it like as we domesticate animals and start having animals in that, with That's what happened originally, by the way. Agriculture infected us with TV, for instance. You know, we're right, in close okay. contact with animals, you know. Any close contact with animals. And the then, vegans of course, are so smug about it. They are very smug. Exactly. Like, you won't get a virus off a vegetable. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> Although I bet plants I bet do you have... Plants have mushroom. viruses. 
I'll have you know, but they're so different to the ones that affect us. They're, they're too remote. But you can get killed by eating loads of kinds of plants. You can, with, t- with toxins, but not, but not with viruses. We heard this week about Reuters did a push notification and I saw it on the Associated Press that aspartame, which is a sweetener in lots of things, for example, Diet Coke, Coke Zero, chewing gum, my wadi, loads of things, mm-hmm. um, has been categorised as a 2B carcinogen, potentially carcinogenic. And people are asking, like, does this mean I should stop drinking Diet Coke? Mm. And I see some doctors on Instagram being like, look at me drinking a Diet Coke because it's so minimal. And then other people being like, well, it's not great. Like, I, I found that very unsatisfactory, that whole business. Did you? Like they say, oh, listen, it might be a carcinogen, but keep drinking this stuff. Isn't that what they said? Did you that's, see that? That's what I was like. like. What's the point in telling people that? You know, I thought it was a bit strange. I thought it was really strange where you're like, well, it either is or it isn't. Oh, like. just, that kind of annoys me. And I hate to say so. I hate to say this, it's experts banging on about something, you know, and, mm-hmm. and frightening people in a way, you know. And I, like that, I know about aspartame. In fact, a good collaborator of mine in Israel. Mm-hmm. The more worrying part of aspartame is you can put on weight. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, there's there's evidence. It changes the bugs in your gut. And that actually makes you put on more weight. So it's not as simple as oh, I'll have a, a you know, sugar-free drink here to help my weight or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That may not be the case. And again, that needs to be further work done. But it's not as if aspartame is benign anyway in, in, with regard to being sugar-free. And then this thing comes out about it being up. Everything's a possible carcinogen in the right dose, remember. So it's a mystery to me why they do that. Were they doing it to say, stop taking these drinks because they're full of chemicals anyway and maybe well, yeah, that's a I good mean, thing? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a or, lot of evidence that says things like Diet Coke... It's a lot of chemicals. Like, it's not, there's nothing natural about it. And Yeah, but I, I suspect there's no evidence that it's going to harm you, is there? Well, <laughs> I the, hope well not. we yeah. have evidence that it's going to fuck up with your gut microbiome. Yeah, yeah, yeah there is that. It's not great. There's like, a bit of that, yeah. The but caffeine. then remember, our bodies are wonderful things, Steph. In it, your liver is full of enzymes to break down toxins because, as we just said earlier, we're exposed to noxious things all the time, remember? And in food and all kinds of places. So I'm I'm sure our body can handle whatever the chemicals are in Diet Coke, I would assume so, you know, unless some study comes out to say that's not the case. Remember the talcum powder nightmare with Johnson & Johnson? Well, talcum powder does cause issues for women. Yes, well, that's strange that we we all use talcum powder for generations. But um, but with this one, I think, I I didn't really understand why the announcement was made, did you? Do you drink Diet Coke? I drink full-on Coke. Right, okay. Occasionally. Cokey Coke cookie. In moderation. I love the flavour. In moderation, you know. <laughs> um, when I was pregnant, I used to have cravings for like a big Diet Coke from from like McDonald's. You know, it had to come out of the machines like from McDonald's yeah. or Supermax, the drive through. But then when I started breastfeeding, I couldn't drink any fizzy drinks because... Yeah. You were cut giving, off. Yeah. I was giving her... So gas. much Coke were you drinking at the height of it? <laughs> Coke Zero. Well, I mean, like I could easily go to the drive through four times a day. <laughs> Like See I go <laughs> first thing in the morning, be like, "Can I get a large diet coke, please?" And they're like, "Yeah, anything else?" I'm like, "No." Yeah, at least it was a cheap craving. So, some women have cravings for more expensive foodstuffs, like caviar or whatever it is. Like diamonds, know, like, yeah, like to chew diamonds. on diamonds. Yeah, that's right. So I have more questions, but what else is new? Because they are all kind of the same about Alzheimer's. Oh, I think it's worth, the it's worth ramming home the joy with Alzheimer's at the moment. Again, it's early days, but can you imagine if we slow down this disease? That's going to be brilliant. And they're two Does separate have companies a, have, this, have a drug and they're both agreeing with each other, which is nice to see. So, so it's a really good news story. When two companies have a drug, yeah, are they like, 
God damn it. Like, is there a secrecy around drugs where they want to be the only one who has the thing and they won't give oh, away yeah, their secret? Oh, yeah, there's intense competition, remember. It's all about patenting and all that kind of thing. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a commercial business, unfortunate as this may seem, but it's, it's very expensive to develop drugs as the usual justification. But scientifically, if you have two separate studies with, diff- mm-hmm. with the same target with two different drugs working, then you probably can conclude that we're onto something now, you know, and that's where the joy is from this. And as we all get older, as you know, Alzheimer's to go through the roof. So here we have it, the first sign. Now, remember, they're all over this now, like a rash, literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, many companies will be going after this pathway. New drugs will continue to emerge to stop beta amyloid. The hypothesis has been confirmed, really. And now we know where to look, you know, to get really effective. And the, the, they'll go from a third to a half, watch, and maybe even higher is the hope here, you know, ultimately. Which and means other slow it down by Even more. more, yeah, yeah. And then there's other targets in this pathway. My own work, actually. So so when the macrophage eats the beta amyloid, mm-hmm. it gets very irritated because it's trying to hoover up the stuff, you know. The macrophage does. Yep. And yep. then there's a thing called NLRP3. That's like the on switch for the vacuum cleaner, if you like. Mm-hmm. That gets jammed in the on position. We have a, dr- we have a drug to stop that. And one of my great collaborators, Marina Lynch, we blocked Alzheimer's in a mouse model of that disease by blocking the macrophage. And that's on the same pathway. You know what I mean? But if you block the macrophage, what's cleaning up the beta amyloid? Well, again, what strangely enough, what you do is you stop the macrophage from dying. It's a bit like you're, okay. you're hoovering up the stuff without overheating the hoover. There's a good analogy for you now. You know? okay. And that's the evidence. Now, again, wouldn't it be wonderful? That's another approach. But it's good for us, this Alzheimer's study, because it's, it's on the same pathway. So the big mystery is why is the beta amyloid building up? We don't know. Years ago, aluminium was thought to be a cause of this. Did you ever remember that one? You're probably too no. young. Oh, there were about 20 odd years ago, was it aluminium utensils were causing Alzheimer's? It wasn't that, you know. Something How did they prove that it wasn't that? I still see people on Instagram saying that aluminium, like using tinfoil, gives you uh, deep metal toxicity in your yeah. body and something. Well, again, it might, let's put it that way, but they've studied it and they've looked at people and they can't get an association from that, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it's unlikely, let's put it that way at the moment, from the evidence that we have, is always the best way to put it. You know? So the beta amyloid builds up, the antibody can clear up the beta amyloid, the macrophage can go in there. If you get the macrophage to do it really effectively, that's another way to stop Alzheimer's. And it's on the same pathway. So now more and more work watch will happen around beta amyloid, macrophages, all this sort of stuff. And we may see even more advances. That's why it's a, it's a, it's a good news story for, for this area. So do macrophages just clean up protein? Main, well, they eat anything. Macrophage, big eater, you know, yeah. in your bloodstream. There's but like, all these cells. Can macrophages cure any disease? They can, absolutely. In fact, that's their key job is to eat noxious things bacteria, viruses, parasites. So if we gunk. just focused on macrophages, could we not like cure all illness? You've just described my lab. Well done. That's ex- <laughs> I worked on macrophages for 35 years. Just or to more get them now. to do different things. As we speak, two minutes from our. Discussion here. My lab are studying macrophages, you know, because they are the key frontline cell. And of course, if you can get them to work better, you'll have great benefits and stop them going out of control and ramp them down. There's all ways to turn them up and turn them down. It's a huge area. The macrophage biology is very active, you know, for that reason. Huh, maybe I'll get into it myself. What else is exciting? What else is exciting this week? Well, I did like um, the other big science story of this week, Steph earwax. What about it? Did you follow that one? No. Don't be poking your ears and getting rid of all the wax. Why? Because it's got a job to do. Now, obviously, you can sometimes... You know, it's a big issue because you know the way wax is clogging up your AirPods yeah. and all that kind of thing. So people are getting in there, you know. Guess what's in wax, Steph? What's the, what's a key... Thing? Macrophages? No, but, but there's all these very interesting antimicrobial peptides okay. that kill bacteria. 
Mm-hmm. So the wax is there to stop you getting ear infections, basically, which is great. And they're characterising what, what wax is made of. Strange is everything. I think what stimulated this is people seeing more wax because of their AirPods. Because of their AirPods. Ears, you know, yeah. Is there a system by where which the ear naturally rids itself of wax? Yes, it turns over. It's a mix of dead cells yeah. and like sebum, a bit like the sweaty stuff on your skin. A ball you of know? wax fell out of my daughter's ear the other day. Did you, like, know, you notice, did you? I was like, what the hell is this? And and it, like, did she try and eat it? No, she didn't. <laughs> I was like, what is this? And then I realised it was earwax. Well, children are interesting. You, you may need to clear children's ears because the canal is very narrow and it can really get clogged in there. You know? But you're, how so can you clear them without pushing it all well, in? Well, this is the tricky part. Be very gentle. <laughs> but there, there is a case of kids' ears bunging up with wax, which isn't very pleasant, is it? You know? Yeah, there was so, so much of it. So can, and that's only in children, you know. So it's okay to limit it a bit, I suppose, is the, the thing. I bet you never thought we'd be discussing earwax, did you? Well, of course, anything is... Do you want the other fact I found out about earwax? Yeah. That it was used as a source of pigment for the, when the monks were illuminating their Bibles. They took an extract from earwax. When the monks were... Remember illumin- the monks were doing like the Book of Kells and yeah. all these fantastic pigments they were using? Yeah. Earwax was used as a source of colourant, if you will, for certain colours in... Illuminated Bibles. I'm not sure it's in the Book of Kells. Oh, I'd say loads of disgusting body fluids were used for different colours. That's all they had. Yeah. They didn't have else. <laughs> and they, they couldn't go down and buy a set of marker pens, could they? How important is BPA-free? I recently saw something that says it's unnecessary, but I find that hard to believe. What does BPA stand for? Is bisphenol? Mm-hmm. Well, when I was on my fertility journey, I read that like BPA causes endocrine disruption and that mm. you should remove all BPA from your just from your life it's bisphenol A I yeah bisphenol know. A yeah but like for example I got all these teething stuff today as a gift mm-hmm. and everything says BPA free on it do you know anything about it? no but, but I imagine there's a branch of science called toxicology yeah. and there are toxicologists and their job is to test chemicals all the time and see if they're harming us you know that aspartame stuff came out of that. I you think know? it's an EU thing. Like if you order stuff from China, it's not BPA free. So there, maybe the, you know, the EU is extremely important as a regulator mm-hmm. of what goes into things, especially man, man-made chemicals. You know, they're tested huge amount for safety. Remember, and yeah. there wouldn't be in a product unless they're safe. Is the key thing. You know, and, but then then sometimes, see if, if you if you do a test of, on safety and you test say five thousand people, you mightn't see any untoward effects, right? Yeah. If it's in a million people, maybe a hundred of them are harmed by it, you know, and that gets reported and then, then they might withdraw the thing. You see, so it's all about toxic, toxicology is, is the branch of science. Very interesting toxicology as a subject. Because BPA is in, like I remember the first time I heard about BPA it was because it's in plastic bottles and the thing mm. was if you have a bottle of water in your car and it gets heated up in the sun, BPA is released from the plastic, goes into the water and then it cools and then you drink the water and you're drinking BPA. But then there are people now saying like the levels of which BPA is in things is not going to harm. It's yeah. unlikely to result in harm. It's all about parts per million and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, they try to calculate what, what the dangerous dose would be of these things. And then the very professional thing to do, this area of toxicology. And, and they've got our best interest at heart. I, I, I'm inclined to trust the experts on these things, you know, yeah. and not to be worrying. Because if you worry about everything, then you're going to be gone mad, aren't you? But do you think about things like when you say like, I just trust the HSE and that's grand. And I, you know me, like I'm, I'm always very like do what I'm told. But then you read about things like, what was that thing that was given to women for morning sickness? Oh, thalidomide. Thalidomide. Oh, yeah. You know, like people, we have in the past made mistakes we about have. what we thought was safe. Oh, we have, yeah. It is human beings all the time, remember, trying uh-huh. to do their best here. So sometimes things break through. Of course they do. But again, the chances are slim. Let's put it that way. And hopefully they can spot it. And then limit these things is what I always think is going on as well. So, and then remember, before any drug is launched on the market, massive safety testing is going to happen. The trouble is in things like plastics and that, 
they will still do toxicology tests on them, you know, and, and then hopefully they will be safe. But the odd bad thing happens, but, but that happens in life anyway. My last question to you is about the mice in your lab. Yeah. Where'd you get them from? You get them from a mouse supplier. Harlan is the company. You're you order them in. Oh, God, yeah. yeah they're very How special often do you mice. get delired, delivered? Reg- regularly. Regularly, when we need them. You know. And they're, they're looked after very well, as you do know. Do they, until you kill them? Oh, that's true, yes. Do you, true. <laughs> do you keep them in cages? Do they smell? Is it loud? How many do you have? It is a bit smelly. In the, in, the, in the in must be said, um, we wouldn't use a huge number now. We mainly want to use human stuff, so we will use human blood a lot in my lab because, of course, the mouse would not be a perfect representation. But sometimes you've got to go what we call in vivo before you go into humans to check for safety because it's experimental, and, and that's the reason. And then, secondly, there are some good models of disease in mice, so, so that, that drug for Alzheimer's would have been tested in mice first was shown to be efficacious there. And then, then, of course, they go on to other other animals. But we want to limit it, remember. And over the years, the good news is less and less of that is happening, which is great. Ultimately, we'll replace animals. That's the goal, actually. And I had a great grant. I want to give them a shout out. It was a wonderful thing. The Humane Research Trust, right? Mm-hmm. They gave me lots of funding to stop, not to use, to use less money. They knew we needed to use them occasionally. Yeah. And I was able to buy all this equipment from that. So there's a big effort to, to limit their use. But still, we have to use them occasionally. And when you test things on humans... Are people like volunteering themselves? Absolutely. Oh, God, yeah. They get paid. Oh, cool. <laughs> yes. That's called a phase one trial. So you get healthy volunteers, do usually get, students. And do you get good money for it? You do. It depends on who, which company is, is, is running the trial. But they get, oh, of course they get paid yeah, for their trouble. You know. And do you ever have to work on, you know, uh, donated cadavers? Sometimes, yes. Now, we, we we take samples, you know, from sometimes from usually live people. Like our COVID study, for example, we got loads of samples from severe COVID patients up in James's and we could measure this coagulation in them, you know, and that mm-hmm. was part of our evidence then, you see. So it's great because obviously human data will trump any other kind of data in this business. If people want to earn money by volunteering. Volunteer, they, yeah, where, clinical, where, trials, where, clinical trials, clinical trials companies, companies as well as them, There's various clinical trials companies. So, so you, you just can, apply to them. You can apply to them, yeah. Send them all your data. The great story there was there was a horrible side effect on a trial. I think it's about 30 years ago now. Sadly, two people got really sick in front of London. Guess what? The number of people volunteering went up because <laughs> they thought, oh, I can make money out of this, you know. Is it serious money? Oh, yeah. It can be It can be hundreds and hundreds a day, you know. Oh, wow. And sometimes you go into a hospital for a week and they give you the experimental drug and they monitor you all week. That My friend did it during college you know? and it was like a, a study on some sort of, I can't remember, but she was, in the end anyway, she was given the... Placebo. Oh, was she? Yes. Yeah. yeah that so was a shame. Like, well, that's probably all right. Yeah, she's like, great. <laughs> there was I didn't even take I'm going to have no side effects. <laughs> and and again, we're, we're very grateful to volunteers because it is, it is a risk. It's not risk-free. But it's not death risk, is it? Extremely low because they start with a tiny dose. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then they make sure the tiny dose is safe. But there's a way that's very regulated, let's face it, you know. And if you do have side effects... Are you given aftercare? Oh God, absolutely. Oh, gee, you're well looked after. Yeah, no, no question. You know, so it's a very carefully done process, and we have these people to thank because if those volunteers didn't step up to yeah. be tested with the drug for Alzheimer's, it wouldn't have got through. Remember, you got you got to go through these phases of. But trials. I think once you have Alzheimer's. That's a different story. You're just sort of like, okay, but you, did you? You can't really test the drug on healthy people, can you? You do initially just for safety. Okay. You see, so make sure it's safe anyway, right? Then you go into your disease group next, that's the phase two trial. Now, the trouble with that is there may be a side effect if you have the disease, you know what I mean? In other yes. words, healthy is different. But still, you do your disease group next. Small numbers, again, they're volunteering. They're getting paid a little bit for this, but still, they have to volunteer for this. And then, and then, then you test in the phase two. That might be three, four, five hundred people. Then your phase three might be thousands. 
And then famously with the vaccines, 95,000 people were on that phase three trial. Talk about a heroic effort. And again, because of safety, you've got to make sure it's going to be safe. So, How much would they have been given? Oh, I'd say a lot. Yeah, that cost, that cost Pfizer a huge amount of money. Oh Although, mind yes. you, Pfizer would give money by the US government. They? I'm sure so. Pfizer will survive. <laughs> they, will, uh, they would indeed. I will let you go there. Thank you, Luke. You have listened to another episode of Basically. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahlo Gar. We're produced by... Oh, we have a new producer. His name is Dan Wilcox and we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. See you next week. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. 